Section 2 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Dole. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 1. Part 1. Of the True Church. Duty of cultivating unity with her, as the mother of all the godly. The three divisions of this chapter are, 1. The article of the Creed concerning the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints, briefly expounded. The grounds on which the Church claims our reverence, sections 1 through 6. 2. Of the Marks of the Church. Section 7 through 9. 3. The necessity of cleaving to the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. Refutation of the errors of the Novatians, Anabaptists, and other schismatics in regard to this matter. Sections 10 through 29. Sections 1. The Church now to be considered. With her, God has deposited whatever is necessary to faith and good order. A summary of what is contained in this book. Why it begins with the Church. 2. In what sense the article of the Creed concerning the Church is to be understood. Why we should say, quote, I believe the Church, unquote, not, quote, I believe in the Church, unquote. The purport of this article, why the Church is called Catholic or Universal. 3. What meant by the communion of saints, whether it is inconsistent with various gifts in the saints or with civil order. Uses of this article concerning the Church and the communion of saints. Must the Church be visible in order to our maintaining unity with her? 4. The name of Mother, given to the Church, shows how necessary it is to know her. No salvation out of the Church. 5. The Church is our Mother, inasmuch as God has committed to her the kind office of bringing us up in the faith until we attain full age. This method of education not to be despised, useful to us in two ways, this utility destroyed by those who despise the pastors and teachers of the church, the petulance of such despisers repressed by reason and scripture. For this education of the church, her children enjoined to meet in the sanctuary the abuse of churches both before and since the advent of Christ, their proper use. 6. Her ministry effectual, but not without the Spirit of God. Passages in proof of this. 7. Second part of the chapter. Concerning the marks of the church. In what respect the church is invisible? in what respect she is visible. 8. 
God alone knoweth them that are his. Still he has given marks to discern his children. 9. These marks are the ministry of the word and administration of the sacraments instituted by Christ. The same rule not to be followed in judging of individuals and of churches. 10. We must on no account forsake the church distinguished by such marks. Those who act otherwise are apostates, deserters of the truth and of the household of God, deniers of God and Christ, violators of the mystical marriage. 11. These marks to be the more carefully observed because Satan strives to efface them or to make us revolt from the church. The twofold error of despising the true and submitting to a false church. 12. Though the common profession should contain some corruption, this is not a sufficient reason for forsaking the visible church. Some of these corruptions specified. Caution necessary. The duty of the members. 13. The immoral lives of certain professors no ground for abandoning the church. Error on this head of the ancient and modern Cathari, their first objection, answer to it from three of our Saviour's parables. 14. Second objection, answer from a consideration of the state of the Corinthian church and the churches of Galatia. 15. Third objection and answer. 16. The origin of these objections, a description of schismatics, their portraiture by Augustine, a pious counsel respecting these scandals and a safe remedy against them. 17. Fourth objection and answer, answer confirmed by the divine promises. 18. Another confirmation from the example of Christ and of the faithful servants of God. The appearance of the church in the days of the prophets. 19. Appearance of the church in the days of Christ and the apostles and their immediate followers. 20. Fifth objection. Answer to the ancient and modern Cathari and to the novations concerning the forgiveness of sins. 21. Answer to the fifth objection continued. By the forgiveness of sins, believers are enabled to remain perpetually in the church. 22. The keys of the church given for the express purpose of securing this benefit. A summary of the answer to the fifth objection. 23. Sixth objection, formerly advanced by the Novations and renewed by the Anabaptists, this error confuted by the Lord's Prayer. 24. A second answer, founded on some examples under the Old Testament. 25. A third answer, confirmed by passages from Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Solomon. A fourth answer, derived from sacrifices. 26. 
a fifth answer from the New Testament, some special examples. 27. General examples, a celebrated passage, the arrangement of the creed. 28. Objection that voluntary transgression excludes from the church. 29. Last objection of the novations, founded on the solemn renewal of repentance required by the church for more heinous offences. Answer. 1. In the last book, it has been shown that by the faith of the gospel, Christ becomes ours, and we are made partakers of the salvation and eternal blessedness procured by Him. But as our ignorance and sloth, I may add the vanity of our mind, stand in need of external helps, by which faith may be begotten in us, and may increase and make progress until its consummation, God, in accommodation to our infirmity, has added such helps, and secured the effectual preaching of the gospel by depositing this treasure with the church. He has appointed pastors and teachers by whose lips he might edify his people. Ephesians 4.11 He has invested them with authority, and in short omitted nothing that might conduce to holy consent in the faith and to right order. In particular, he has instituted sacraments, which we feel by experience to be most useful helps in fostering and confirming our faith. For seeing we are shut up in the prison of the body, and have not yet attained to the rank of angels, God, in accommodation to our capacity, has in His admirable providence provided a method by which, though widely separated, we might still draw near to Him. Wherefore, due order requires that we first treat of the church, of its government, orders, and power, next of the sacraments, and lastly of the civil government, at the same time guarding pious readers against the corruptions of the papacy, by which Satan has adulterated all that God had appointed for our salvation. I will begin with the church, into whose bosom God is pleased to collect His children, not only that by her aid and ministry they may be nourished so long as they are babes and children, but may also be guided by her maternal care until they go up to manhood and finally attain to the perfection of faith. What God has thus joined, let not man put asunder. Mark 10.9 To those to whom he is a father, the church must also be a mother. This was true not merely under the law, but even now, after the advent of Christ, since Paul declares that we are the children of a new, even a heavenly, Jerusalem. Galatians 4.26 2. When, in the Creed, we profess to believe the Church, reference is made not only to the visible Church of which we are now treating, but also to all the elect of God, including in the number even those who have departed this life. And accordingly, the word used is, quote, believe, unquote, 
because oftentimes no difference can be observed between the children of God and the profane, between his proper flock and the untamed herd. The particle in is often interpolated, but without any probable ground. I confess indeed that it is the more usual form, and it is not unsupported by antiquity, since the Nicene Creed, as quoted in ecclesiastical history, adds the preposition. At the same time we may perceive from early writers that the expression received without controversy in ancient times was to believe, quote, the church, unquote, and not, quote, in the church, unquote. This is not only the expression used by Augustine, and that ancient writer, whoever he may have been, whose treatise De Symboli Expositi Orne is extant under the name of Cyprian. But they distinctly remark that the addition of the preposition would make the expression improper, and they give good grounds for so thinking. We declare that we believe in God both because our mind reclines upon him as true, and our confidence is fully satisfied in him. This cannot be said of the church, just as it cannot be said of the forgiveness of sins, or the resurrection of the body. Wherefore, although I am unwilling to dispute about words, yet I would rather keep to the proper form, as better fitted to express the thing that is meant than affect terms by which the meaning is causelessly obscured. The object of the expression is to teach us that though the devil leaves no stone unturned in order to destroy the grace of Christ, and the enemies of God rush with insane violence in the same direction, it cannot be extinguished. The blood of Christ cannot be rendered barren and prevented from producing fruit. Hence regard must be had both to the secret election and to the internal calling of God, because he alone, quote, knoweth them that are his, unquote, to Timothy 2.19, and as Paul expresses it, holds them, as it were, enclosed under his seal, although at the same time they wear his insignia and are thus distinguished from the reprobate. But as they are a small and despised number, concealed in an immense crowd, like a few grains of wheat buried among a heap of chaff, to God alone must be left the knowledge of his church, of which his secret election forms the foundation. Nor is it enough to embrace the number of the elect in thought and intention merely, by the unity of the church, we must understand a unity into which we feel persuaded that we are truly engrafted. For unless we are united with all the other members under Christ our head, no hope of the future inheritance awaits us. Hence the church is called Catholic, or universal. Augustine, E.P. 48. For two or three cannot be invented without dividing Christ, and this is impossible. All the elect of God are so joined together in Christ that as they depend on one head, so they are, as it were, compacted into one body, 
being knit together like its different members, made truly one by living together under the same Spirit of God, in one faith, hope, and charity, called not only to the same inheritance of eternal life, but to participate in one God and Christ. For although the sad devastation which everywhere meets our view may proclaim that no church remains, let us know that the death of Christ produces fruit, and that God wondrously preserves his church, while placing it, as it were, in concealment. Thus it was said to Elijah, quote, Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel. Unquote. 1 Kings 19.18 3. Moreover, this article of the Creed relates in some measure to the external church, that every one of us must maintain brotherly concord with all the children of God, give due authority to the church, and in short, conduct ourselves as sheep of the flock. And hence the additional expression, the, quote, communion of saints, unquote. For this cause, although usually omitted by ancient writers, must not be overlooked, as it admirably expresses the quality of the church. Just as if it had been said that saints are united in the fellowship of Christ on this condition, that all the blessings which God bestows upon them are mutually communicated to each other. This, however, is not incompatible with the diversity of graces, for we know that the gifts of the Spirit are variously distributed, nor is it incompatible with civil order, by which each is permitted privately to possess his own means, it being necessary for the preservation of peace among men, that distinct rights of property should exist among them. Still a community is asserted, such as Luke describes, when he says, quote, The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, unquote, Acts 4.32. And Paul, when he reminds the Ephesians, quote, There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, unquote, Ephesians 4.4. For if they are truly persuaded that God is the common Father of them all, and Christ their common head, they cannot but be united together in brotherly love, and mutually impart their blessings to each other. Then it is of the highest importance for us to know what benefit thence redounds to us. For when we believe the Church, it is in order that we may be firmly persuaded that we are its members. In this way, our salvation rests on a foundation so firm and sure that though the whole fabric of the world were to give way, it could not be destroyed. First it stands with the election of God and cannot change or fail any more than His eternal providence. Next, it is, in a manner, united with the stability of Christ who will no more allow his faithful followers to be dissevered from him than he would allow his own members to be torn to pieces. We may add that so long as we continue in the bosom of the church, 
we are sure that the truth will remain with us. Lastly, we feel that we have an interest in such promises as these. Quote, In Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. Unquote. Joel 2.32, Obadiah 17. Quote, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Unquote. Psalm 46.5. So, available is communion with the church to keep us in the fellowship of God. In the very term communion, there is great consolation, because while we are assured that everything which God bestows on his members belongs to us, all the blessings conferred upon them confirm our hope. But in order to embrace the unity of the church in this manner, it is not necessary, as I have observed, to see it with our eyes or feel it with our hands. Nay, rather, from its being placed in faith, we are reminded that our thoughts are to dwell upon it, as much when it escapes our perception as when it openly appears. Nor is our faith the worse for apprehending what is unknown, since we are not enjoined here to distinguish between the elect and the reprobate. This belongs not to us, but to God only. But to feel firmly assured in our minds that all those who, by the mercy of God the Father, through the efficacy of the Holy Spirit, have become partakers with Christ, are set apart as the proper and peculiar possession of God, and that as we are of the number, we also partakers of this great grace. 4. But as it is now our purpose to discourse of the visible church, let us learn from her single title of mother how useful, nay, how necessary, the knowledge of her is, since there is no other means of entering into life unless she conceives us in the womb and give us birth, unless she nourish us at her breasts, and in short keep us under her charge and government until, divested of mortal flesh, we become like the angels. Matthew 22.30 For our weakness does not permit us to leave the school until we have spent our whole lives as scholars. Moreover, beyond the pale of the church, no forgiveness of sins, no salvation can be hoped for, as Isaiah and Joel testify. Isaiah 37.32, Joel 2.32 To their testimony Ezekiel subscribes, when he declares, quote, they shall not be in the assembly of my people, neither shall they be written in the writing of the house of Israel. Unquote. Ezekiel 3.9 As on the other hand, those who turn to the cultivation of true piety are said to inscribe their names among the citizens of Jerusalem. For which reason it is said in the psalm, quote, Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people. O visit me with thy salvation, that I may see the good of thy chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that I may glory with thine inheritance. Unquote. Psalm 106, 4 and 5. By these words, the paternal favor of God and the special evidence of spiritual life are confined to his peculiar people, 
and hence the abandonment of the church is always fatal. 5. But let us proceed to a full exposition of this view. Paul says that our Saviour, quote, ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Unquote. Ephesians 4.10-13 We see that God, who might perfect his people in a moment, chooses not to bring them to manhood in any other way than by the education of the church. We see the mode of doing it expressed. The preaching of celestial doctrine is committed to pastors. We see that all, without exception, are brought into the same order, that they may with meek and docile spirit allow themselves to be governed by teachers appointed for this purpose. Isaiah had long before given this as the characteristic of the kingdom of Christ. Quote, my spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and for ever. Unquote. Isaiah 59.21 Hence it follows that all who reject the spiritual food of the soul, divinely offered to them by the hands of the church, deserve to perish of hunger and famine. God inspires us with faith, but it is by the instrumentality of his gospel. As Paul reminds us, quote, faith cometh by hearing, unquote, Romans 10.17. God reserves to himself the power of maintaining it, but it is by the preaching of the gospel, as Paul also declares, that he brings it forth and unfolds it. With this view it pleased him in ancient times that sacred meetings should be held in the sanctuary, that consent in faith might be nourished by doctrine proceeding from the lips of the priest. Those magnificent titles, as when the temple is called God's rest, his sanctuary, his habitation, and when he is said to dwell between the cherubims, Psalm 32, 13, 14, 80, verse 1, are used for no other purpose than to procure respect, love, reverence, and dignity to the ministry of heavenly doctrine, to which otherwise the appearance of an insignificant human being might be in no slight degree derogatory. Therefore, to teach us that the treasure offered to us in earthen vessels is of inestimable value. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 God himself appears, and as the author of this ordinance, requires his presence to be recognized in his own institution. Accordingly, after forbidding his people to give heed to familiar spirits, wizards, and any other superstitions, Leviticus 19, 30, 31, he adds that he will give what ought to be sufficient for all, namely, that he will never leave them without profits. 
for as he did not commit his ancient people to angels, but raised up teachers on the earth to perform a truly angelical office, so he is pleased to instruct us in the present day by human means. But as anciently he did not confine himself to the law merely, but added priests as interpreters, from whose lips the people might inquire after his true meaning. So in the present day he would not only have us to be attentive to reading, but has appointed masters to give us their assistance. In this there is a twofold advantage, for on the one hand he, by an admirable test, proves our obedience when we listen to his ministers just as we would to himself, while on the other hand he consults our weakness in being pleased to address us after the manner of men by means of interpreters, that he may thus allure us to himself instead of driving us away by his thunder. How well this familiar mode of teaching is suited to us, all the godly are aware from the dread with which the divine majesty justly inspires them. Those who think that the authority of the doctrine is impaired by the insignificance of the men who are called to teach betray ingratitude, for among the many noble endowments with which God has adorned the human race, one of the most remarkable is that he deigns to consecrate the mouths and tongues of men to his service, making his own voice to be heard in them. Wherefore, let us not on our part decline obediently to embrace the doctrine of salvation delivered by his command and mouth, because although the power of God is not confined to external means, he has, however, confined us to his ordinary method of teaching, which method, when fanatics refuse to observe, they entangle themselves in many fatal snares. Pride or fastidiousness or emulation induces many to persuade themselves that they can profit sufficiently by reading and meditating in private and thus to despise public meetings, and deem preaching superfluous. But since as much as in them lies they loose or burst the sacred bond of unity, none of them escapes the just punishment of this impious divorce, but become fascinated with pestiferous errors and the foulest delusions. Wherefore, in order that the pure simplicity of the faith may flourish among us, let us not decline to use this exercise of piety, which God by his institution of it has shown to be necessary, and which he so highly recommends. None, even amongst the most petulant of men, would venture to say that we are to shut our ears against God. But in all ages, prophets and pious teachers have had a difficult contest to maintain with the ungodly, whose perverseness cannot submit to the yoke of being taught by the lips and ministry of men. This is just the same as if they were to destroy the impress of God, as exhibited to us in doctrine. For no other reason were believers anciently enjoined to seek the face of God in the sanctuary. Psalm 105.4 An injunction so often repeated in the law. Then, because the doctrine of the law and the exhortations of the prophets were to them a living image of God.
Thus Paul declares that in his preaching the glory of God shone in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 The more detestable are the apostates who delight in producing schisms in churches, just as if they wished to drive the sheep from the fold and throw them into the jaws of wolves. Let us hold agreeably to the passage we quoted from Paul that the church can only be edified by external preaching and that there is no other bond by which the saints can be kept together than by uniting with one consent to observe the order which God has appointed in his church for learning and making progress. For this end especially, as I have observed, believers were anciently enjoined under the law to flock together to the sanctuary. For when Moses speaks of the habitation of God, he at the same time calls it the place of the name of God, the place where he will record his name, Exodus 20.24, thus plainly teaching that no use could be made of it without the doctrine of godliness. And there can be no doubt that, for the same reason, David complains with great bitterness of soul that by the tyrannical cruelty of his enemies he was prevented from entering the tabernacle. Psalm 84. To many the complaint seems childish, as if no great loss were sustained, not much pleasure lost by exclusion from the temple, provided other amusements were enjoyed. David, however, laments this one deprivation as filling him with anxiety and sadness, tormenting and almost destroying him. This he does because there is nothing on which believers set a higher value than on this aid, by which God gradually raises his people to heaven. For it is to be observed that he always exhibited himself to the holy patriarchs in the mirror of his doctrine, in such a way as to make their knowledge spiritual. Whence the temple is not only styled his face, but also for the purpose of removing superstition is termed his footstool. Psalm 132.7.99.5 Herein is the unity of the faith happily realized, when all, from the highest to the lowest, aspire to the head. All the temples which the Gentiles built to God with a different intention were a mere profanation of his worship, a profanation into which the Jews also fell, though not with equal grossness. With this Stephen upbraids them in the words of Isaiah, when he says, quote, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, unquote etc., Acts 7.48. For God only consecrates temples to their legitimate use by His word. And when we rashly attempt anything without His order, immediately setting out from a bad principle, we introduce adventitious fictions by which evil is propagated without measure. It was inconsiderate in Xerxes when by the advice of the Magians he burnt or pulled down all the temples of Greece, because he thought it absurd that God, to whom all things ought to be free and open, should be enclosed by walls and roofs, as if it were not in the power of God in a manner to descend to us, that he may be near to us. 
and yet neither change his place nor affect us by earthly means, but rather by a kind of vehicles raise us aloft to his own heavenly glory, which with its immensity fills all things, and in height is above the heavens. End of section 2